Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast from Morningstar. The Morningstar Investment Conference for Investment Professionals will be held virtually this year on September 16th and 17th. We're offering the same research, analysis, and insight for investment professionals you'd get at the live event for a reduced price of $149. And the best part is you can join us from wherever you are. For more information or to register, visit go.morningstar.com MIC. In this week's podcast, we highlight four utilities that have strong growth prospects. Maria Bruno talks about RMDs. Christine Benz discusses the fate of the 60-40 portfolio. Alex Bryan shows investors how to keep up with momentum investing. And we share four stocks we expect will struggle to increase their dividends. Let's get started. We highlight four utilities that have strong growth prospects. Despite the headwinds posed by COVID-19, utilities continue to have strong growth prospects, healthy financials, and growing dividends. We think the following utilities have the best dividend growth opportunities, boosted by low payout ratios, robust capital investment opportunities, and constructive regulatory environments. We forecast that NextEra Energy can increase its dividend 11.5% annually over the next five years, well above its peer group average and the highest in our coverage universe. Additionally, its lower-than-average 62% payout ratio gives NextEra greater flexibility to increase its dividends as cash flows grow. Constructive rate regulation in its service territories and long-term renewable energy contracts at NextEra Resources provide additional dividend support. American Waterworks has begun accelerating its dividend growth with annual increases averaging over 10% during the past seven years. We expect 10% annual dividend growth to continue for the next five years. The company's 56% payout ratio based on adjusted 2020 earnings is low for the sector. Thus, we believe there is room to increase the dividend modestly faster than earnings growth. Sempra Energy has de-risked its portfolio, focusing on regulated distribution and transmission utilities that are the keys to its healthy capital investment plan. This portfolio pivot, its lower-than-average payout ratio, and cash flows from the contracted Cameron LNG trains should allow Sempra to increase its dividend over 9% annually during the next five years. Lastly, the managers at Atmos Energy have targeted a conservative 50% dividend payout ratio. With our 7.5% earnings growth estimate, we believe Atmos's annual dividend growth could top management's 6% to 8% target during the next five years. Atmos enjoys constructive regulation at all of its subsidiaries. Six days a week, we deliver the latest news for investors. Just say, Alexa, enable the Morningstar skill, or visit Morningstar.com Alexa. Next, Christine Benz from Morningstar Inc. interviews Maria Bruno of Vanguard. Hi, I'm Christine Benz from Morningstar. Changes are afoot to required minimum distributions for 2020. Joining me to discuss potential implications for your retirement plan is Maria Bruno. She's director of U.S. Wealth Planning Research for Vanguard, and she's also a certified financial planner. Maria, thank you so much for being here. Hi, Christine. Thanks for having me. So, Maria, there's a lot going on with required minimum distributions. Let's take it a little bit back into 2019 and discuss the SECURE Act and the changes for the RMD age. Can you summarize that? 
So, Christine, the SECURE Act that passed in December of 2019 essentially moved the RMD age from 70 and a half to age 72. So, push that RMD, the start, back. Um, the important thing to note was that if you had turned 70 and a half last year, you were still required to take the distribution by April 1st of 2020. Um, but if you um, would have turned 70 and a half this year in 2020, then you wouldn't have to take the distribution until April 1st, the year following when you turned 72. The SECURE Act also had some implications for IRA beneficiaries. Essentially, it was the death knell of the stretch IRA, right? Uh, Correct. So previously, if you inherited an IRA, you could take distributions based upon your life expectancy. Um, With the passage of the Act, it basically eliminated that and is requiring um, non-spouse beneficiaries. There's a few other provisions um, like minors, um, but essentially it now limits the distribution for beneficiaries to 10 years. Okay. Now I want to talk about the CARES Act uh, ushered in in 2020 in response to the pandemic. Effectively, that puts a pause on required minimum distributions for most people. Why is that? What was the idea behind pausing RMDs for this year? Um, well, the when you take RMDs, it is subject to income taxation as well. Um, so there was a couple factors probably going on there in that the markets were volatile earlier in the year and realizing that a number of individuals were stuck in a financial pinch as a result of everything that was going on. So this has happened before where they give a reprieve on the RMD um, given you know the current economic conditions, for instance. So we're seeing that this year as well where um, we get a, a free pass, if you will, on required distributions. Now, what about people who already took their RMDs for 2020 and they don't need the money and they maybe want to undo that? Is, is that a possibility? It is, actually. So if you have taken your RMD this year and you want to roll that back, you have the opportunity to do so. You have until August 31st. They recently extended that to August 31st of this year. Um, I think the one thing that's important to clarify is I'd mentioned um, if you turned 70 and a half last year, you were required to take the distribution by April 1st of 2020. So if you did take the RMD last year, that was last year, so that had to have been met. But if you were in a position where you either took the distribution this year, again, assuming you turned 70 and a half last year, if you took it by April 1st, um, you can roll that back. Um, If you haven't taken an RMD, then of course you don't necessarily need to this year. Okay. So what we've been hearing since the CARES Act passed is that retirees who can afford to do so should forego their required minimum distributions for 2020. So let's discuss the potential benefits if you are in a position of not needing your RMDs, you've got funds elsewhere that you can live on for 2020. Why would you want to do that? Yeah, so if you're in the fortunate position where you don't need that money to live off of, you've got some flexibility. And by deferring that RMD, there's a couple benefits to that. First and foremost, the account continues to grow tax advantaged. Um, So if you don't take the distribution this year, obviously it's not going to affect your income tax for this year. Um, So you get a break on the taxes this year and the IRA continues to grow. Uh, So that's the main benefit of the deferral. So how about um, any other strategies? Say I find myself in this temporarily low tax year because I decided not to take my RMD for 2020. Are there any things that I could do potentially to improve my tax position going forward? Yeah, it is interesting because it does offer flexibility. I mean, obviously, if you're in a situation where you need that RMD for retirement spending, then 
you know, many individuals will take the RMD and, and use it for spending purposes. Um, if you're in the position where you don't need that, then you have flexibility. So just because you can defer it does not necessarily mean that you should defer it. Um, so really look at this year's tax picture and see whether it makes sense to actually take all or part of that distribution. Um, because there may be benefits to a couple things. One, if you're worried about what the tax landscape may look like in the next few years, for instance, if there's any policy changes and you might have some concerns there, then you might want to consider taking some distributions from the IRA. Um, likewise, if you're in a position where you might have some offset, perhaps you want to use that income and maybe offset it with some charitable giving. Um, perhaps the additional income can be offset by some deductions. So there is probably some tax planning opportunities there. And if you do have a very large IRA and you're subjected to large RMDs, you might want to think through what what that would mean this year's tax picture versus the next several years, because it may make sense to smooth that and still continue that RMD. Um, you might be able to do charitable contributions, like a qualified charitable distribution from the IRA. That's always an option as well. So you do have flexibility. Um, what it has removed is the required piece of that, the required minimum distribution. Well, it sounds like this is a good spot to get some tax help. You also say it's important to remember if you are a retiree who has put in place a plan where your RMD gets automatically paid out to you so you don't forget that you'd want to switch that off, right? Yeah, absolutely. So if you are in, a, in an automated service that calculates and distributes the required minimum distribution, then you certainly want to let your investment provider know and then they can disable that or you could do that online. Absolutely. That's a good practical tip. Okay, Maria, you always have such great insights for us. Thank you so much for being here today. Thank you, Christine. Thanks for watching. I'm Christine Benz for Morningstar.com. Watch all the Morningstar content you love from your living room. Download the Morningstar Roku channel and get up-to-date independent insights on today's markets. Be comfortable. Be informed. Now, Susan Jabinski and Christine Benz from Morningstar, Inc. discuss the fate of the 60-40 portfolio. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. After a tremendous run-up during the past decade, some advisors and institutions are saying that the 60-40 portfolio is dead. What is it? Here with me today to explore the topic is Christine Benz. Christine is Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance. Christine, great to see you. Thanks for being here. Susan, it's great to see you. Thank you. Now, let's step back a minute and start with the concept of a 60-40 portfolio. What does that refer to? Well, there are different variations, but the classical interpretation of a 60-40 portfolio is 60% S&P 500 index, so large cap stocks, as well as 40% in treasury bonds. In some interpretations, that's long treasury bonds. And so historically, that has been held out there as kind of a baseline or a starting point for investors' portfolios. There are different variations, but that's sort of the classic version. So given that, it's done, that blend's done pretty well the past 10 years or so, right? It absolutely has. So when you look at Vanguard Balanced Index, which I think of as kind of a good interpretation of a 60-40 portfolio, what you have there is about a 10% annualized return over the past decade. So that is much better than most other balance type products have done. It's been pretty hard to beat. And the interesting thing is, Susan, a decade ago, coming out of the financial crisis, one thing we kept hearing again and again was 60-40 is dead. 
And lo and behold, 10 years later, it has performed pretty well and has beaten other arguably more complicated and maybe more costly investment mixes. So you said 10 years ago, people were saying this, this is dead. Now they're saying it again. What's triggering that this time? Well, this time, I think the main focus is on the bond piece. And that is legitimate, especially when you think about starting yields as being a good predictor of what you might expect from bonds over the next decade. Right now, we're sitting at a point where treasury bond yields, 10-year treasury bond yields are around 60 basis points, so 0.60%. The Bloomberg Barclays Aggregate Index is yielding a little bit more than that because it includes exposure to corporate bonds and asset-backed bonds and so forth. But still, it's not uh, it's not over 2% today. So that's the big reason that some investors are concerned about 6040's performance going forward. The other thing to think about is that 6040 usually calls for that 60% being in U.S. equities. And we've had just a terrific run in the U.S. stock market. U.S. stocks have outperformed most other foreign markets. And so valuations are stretched here, given that we have had better performance. When I do these annual compendia of asset class return forecasts to a firm, uh, Morningstar Investment Management included, firms are calling for better returns over the next decade from non-U.S. markets than U.S. So given that backdrop, should we be tossing 60-40 overboard? Well, I sometimes think that, you know, the 60-40 is dead argument is a straw man that investment firms sometimes uh, throw out there because they are peddling other strategies, oftentimes more complicated, oftentimes more uh, costly strategies. So I do think that investors should be on their guard when they hear 60-40 is dead. And I think that they should also use their own time horizons to inform their own asset allocation. No single asset allocation fits all people. Younger investors, folks in their 20s, 30s, even 40s, I would argue should probably have higher equity weightings by and large than than 60% because of that drag that is likely to come from having too much in conservative investments. On the other hand, if you're a retiree getting close to needing your money, I think you want to make sure that you have ample liquid reserves, ample bond holdings in your portfolio, because we could have further equity market volatility. And the last thing you want to be doing is drawing upon a portfolio that's simultaneously declining. So really use your own situation to inform how to position your portfolio. So 60-40 may not be dead, but it really may not be applicable for, for most of us as investors as, our, as the correct mix for us anyway, right? That's right. So um, the 60% being U.S. equity, I would say all investors, but especially investors with nice long time horizons, should embrace a globally diversified portfolio. How global you are, I think, really depends on you as an individual, but I think that that should be the starting point today for investors' equity allocations. Assume that you will have a globally diversified portfolio. It's the fixed income sleeve that I get a little bit more concerned with people dabbling in 
higher yielding, potentially higher risk asset classes. You can venture beyond treasuries for sure, and you probably should given how low yields they are they have today. But treasuries have been tremendously effective ballast for equity portfolios. So I think to the extent that you have bonds in your portfolio, and again, particularly if you're someone who is getting close to or in drawdown mode, make sure the complexion of that fixed income portfolio is high quality so that it really can give you that ballast if we experience another period of market turbulence like we had this past spring. Christine, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Next, Alex Bryan from Morningstar Research Services shows investors how to keep up with momentum investing. Hi, I'm Christine Benz from Morningstar. What role, if any, should momentum strategies play in investors' portfolios? Joining me to discuss that question is Alex Bryan. He's Morningstar's Director of Passive Strategies Research in North America. Alex, thank you for being here. Thank you for having me. Alex, you wrote about momentum investing in the latest issue of ETF Investor. Before we get into that discussion, can you just define what momentum investing is? So momentum is based on the premise that recent performance tends to persist. In other words, stocks that have recently outperformed continue to outperform in the short term. Now, this has been a very widely documented phenomenon. And I think one of the best explanations for it is that investors are slow to react to new information, and that causes prices to adjust more slowly to new information than they otherwise should, and that can create persistence in performance. Now, once a trend has been established, you might have more investors pile into the trade, and that can push prices away from their fair value, leading to those long-term reversals that we see behind the value effect. But in the short term, we notice that performance tends to persist on average. So a follow-up question is, we're often telling investors not to performance chase, that that rarely leads to good outcomes. So can you explain the disconnect why, say, performance chasing mutual funds is not a good idea, but momentum strategies might have legs in other situations? That's a great question. Uh, Long-term performance chasing is really where investors get into trouble. Momentum is a short-term phenomenon. We're talking about performance over the past 6 to 12 months continuing over the next 6 to 12 months. But a lot of times when investors chase performance in mutual funds, they're looking at a manager that has a really strong multi-year record, you know, strong performance over the last 3 to 5 years. Now, if you buy into a strategy that has really strong performance over a longer time period, Odds are you're not getting momentum. You're buying into stocks that are very expensive and perhaps priced to offer lower returns going forward. So in the long term, we see mean reversion in performance. Things that outperform long enough eventually become expensive and priced to offer lower returns going forward. But in the short term, there tends to be a continuation of the trend. So it's really important to have the right time frame in mind. Uh, and if you're going to do this, it's best to, to invest in a strategy that does it for you so you don't have to worry about uh, maybe messing up the implementation. So while momentum strategies might look good on paper, you note that sometimes there can be challenges with implementation. Let's talk about some of those. Well, implementation certainly does matter. Uh, one of the uh, key challenges in translating this academic research into practice is that Transaction costs are very real for momentum strategies. These strategies require very high turnover. 
uh, which can be expensive for the funds that are actually trading these stocks. It can also lead to poor tax efficiency. So those are the, the most notable problems. Uh, on top of this, momentum strategies tend to struggle during periods of high market volatility like what we saw earlier this year. And if you think about that, it kind of makes sense because in the late stages of a market rally, momentum strategies often will overweight more cyclical names, and those names are the ones that get hammered the most during market corrections. And then coming out of a correction, they often overweight more defensive names and miss out on the early stages of the recovery. So implementation absolutely matters, and I think some funds uh, approach it better than others. One thing I sometimes read is that the S&P 500 or any other index that is constructed according to capitalization weighting is, in effect, a momentum strategy. What do, you, what do you say to that assertion? Well, I think it depends on what your reference point is. Uh, if your reference point is the market, what all investors own in aggregate, well, then by definition, you're not getting anything distinctive there. But if you were to compare a market cap weighted index to an alternative, let's say an equal weighted version of the Russell 1000, for example, then there is some truth to the fact that the market cap weighted strategy allows the winners to run and, and may have a little bit of momentum exposure in there. But I will emphasize that even against an equal weighted benchmark, it is a very modest exposure to momentum. And if you're really looking to harness this um, anomaly, the best way to do that is with a, a fund that explicitly targets stocks that have strong momentum relative to other stocks. Um, I think that's really the best way of capturing this. Are there any momentum funds or ETFs that you like? There's one that, that we do like quite a bit. It's the uh, iShares MSCI USA Momentum Factor ETF, ticker is MTUM. Uh, this fund basically looks for stocks that have strong risk-adjusted performance. And I think that focus on risk-adjusted performance is important. And it helps uh, this fund during choppy market periods because it's less likely to load up on more cyclical names during market rallies or defensive names during downturns. Um, so that, that can help performance when the market turns. The other thing I really like about this strategy is that it puts some smart buffers in place to mitigate unnecessary turnover. Now that can slightly dilute the fund's style purity, but when you're translating momentum into practice, I think the reduction in transaction costs and the improvement in tax efficiency are well worth it. Finally, I'd note that this fund has yet to distribute any capital gains. It's been very tax efficient, and it's also very cheap. It charges a low 15 basis points expense ratio, so it has a very low cost hurdle to overcome. So I'd say as far as momentum strategies, this is certainly one of our favorites. It currently carries a Morningstar analyst rating of silver. Alex, it's always great to get your perspective. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. And lastly, we share four stocks we expect will struggle to increase their dividends. Many of the utilities we cover have strong growth prospects and healthy financials that should allow them to easily grow their dividends. For a few utilities, however, dividend growth may be more challenging. Hawaiian Electric's shareholders were treated to a rare dividend increase of 3.2% in the first quarter of 2019, the first in 20 years, and a similar increase in 2020. Once past the impact from COVID-19, which likely will result in no increase in 2021, we project average annual increases of roughly 3% for 2022 through 2024. Hawaiian Electric continues to be a confusing story for investors, as it derives roughly two-thirds of consolidated earnings from an electric utility and about one-third from Hawaii-based American Savings Bank, 
The Hawaiian economy, driven in large part by tourism, affects both businesses. And that reliance on tourism will weigh on Hawaiian's dividend growth. Consolidated Edison has increased its dividend for 46 consecutive years, and it raised it 3.4% in January 2020. Indeed, Consolidated Edison's focus on electric and natural gas distribution, combined with decoupled and forward-looking rates, has produced among the most stable earnings in the utility sector. We believe the dividend is safe considering the conservative strategy of the company's non-utility businesses and the favorable regulatory framework for its New York utilities. However, we estimate the economic impact of COVID-19 will reduce average annual dividend increases to about 2.4% over the next five years. PPL plans to spend $13.8 billion at its domestic and international utilities through 2024. These regulated growth opportunities support 4% annual rate-based growth through 2024, one of the lowest growth rates in the sector. Beginning in 2023, we think it will be difficult for PPL to offset an expected decline in returns in the United Kingdom under the proposed regulatory framework. As a result, we forecast dividends will increase less than 1% annually through 2022. Lastly, PG&E suspended its common dividend in late 2017, and the company likely won't bring it back until at least 2023 based on regulatory requirements in the bankruptcy exit plan. We expect it will take PG&E at least three years post-bankruptcy to accumulate the $6.2 billion of earnings that regulators are requiring before it can initiate a dividend. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services, LLC, is a subsidiary of Morningstar, Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions, or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.